All right. Good morning, family. Good morning. For those uh, who are visiting, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the elders uh, here at the church, and it's got to see everyone this morning. Uh, today, we are particularly excited because we are starting now a brand new series on the book of Nehemiah. And so uh, two weeks ago, we finished a uh, probably a year-long journey through the book of Hebrews, and it was a great blessing. Learned a whole ton from, from that. And you can find, by the way, you can find all, every single of those sermons uh, on our website. You can always refer back to them and everything. So we're glad for that tool as well. Um, and today we are starting now with uh, the book of Nehemiah. And so um, now we, uh, we're going back now to an Old Testament book. And as you can tell by now, we've been doing this kind of back and forth. And it, it's kind of like a pattern now. Uh, for choosing um, serious. And so uh, we are intentionally now alternating from books of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And, and that's just simply because we believe that the whole counsel of God is indeed breathed out by God for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. And so we believe that and we want to be able to have the whole scope of the Word of God. And so as much as we can and as much as possible, we will try to go back and forth in New Testament and Old Testament book, uh, acknowledging that it is all breathed out by God. And so um, so we are excited to be diving into this new time period and, and just a whole uh, new perspective there. So let's go ahead and uh, without further delay, just read the first four verses of Nehemiah. So it'll be Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Nehemiah just looked... Uh, it's in the in the uh, um, a little bit before Psalms there, so you've been open up, go back a little bit, you'll find it there somewhere. Um, or if you have an app, just type in N E H, and you know it'll come up. Um, so let me read for uh, for you here Nehemiah chapter one verses one through four, and this is God's word. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exiled, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and prayer and, and praying before the God of heaven. So let's pray before diving into here. Father, we are so glad for your word. We thank you for the access that we have to it. We thank you for the time that we're living in because it's just so easy now to have these tools, these your, your very word, even in our pockets today, wherever we go, Lord God, and we just take that for granted, Lord God. But we want today to stop for a second and, and be grateful for that. And we want to thank you for this new book, Lord God, that we'll be um, studying together, that we would uh, just be transformed, that we would be um, corrected, rebuked, encouraged, Lord God, and that your name will be glorified and that we would just... Um, be encouraged for godly living, Lord God, from this account. So we thank you and we trust in your power and your Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us. And uh, just take me out of the way 
and let your word, Lord God, shine forth and penetrate in our hearts for our transformation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how many of you guys dislike being late to a conversation or to a movie or a play in the theater, right? And it's funny because I actually did have an example of that this morning. I went to the kids, uh, to the, uh, the three to five-year-olds in the morning, and uh, I came in to, to one of the guys, and uh, they were laughing as soon as I came in, and, and I just started laughing. <laughs> but I was late to the conversation. I had no idea what was going on, but I still laughed with them. So, But, you know, I needed to have some context and know what was going on. But uh, So that did happen this morning. But, uh, you know, when that stuff like that happens, we arrive at the scene, right, without any previous contact and background and uh, just lost in the conversation or we're lost in the middle of the movie. And we hate to ask things like, sorry, can you repeat yourself again from the beginning? Or, or if you don't care like me, I just go ahead in the movie theater and ask a stranger right beside me, hey, you know, fill me in, right? We don't want to do it, but if we want to really get the whole story, we have to really dive in into some of the context, what has happened in order for us to be able to track with the story. And so the first verses here of Nehemiah are kind of like that. From the book of Nehemiah, it gives us a sense of being late into the conversation. Uh, and indeed, in a way, we are. The movie has been going on for a while, and Nehemiah is just one chapter that of the already started broader story. And so actually, if we pay attention to these first verses, we can notice an important clues to give us and help us to give context to the story. And so many aspects that we see here, we see time, places, and characters. We see an escape, which implies some kind of uh, imprisonment. We see uh, the word exile, the word remnant, etc. So these are helpful insights for us to take and rewind into the broader story to bring us more understandable background to this wonderful story. And this is actually the importance of doing inductive Bible study for all of us. And that, what that is, is we just dig into the broader context of the narrative in order to understand and interpret the specific verses that we're reading. So I encourage each one of us to do this in a reading of the Bible, to ask the questions, right? And, and this is material for school, right? Every time we need to comprehend a text, we go with the five W's and the H, right? We ask the what, where, why, who, when, and the how. And each of these answers will put you in the right place what the author's intention is behind the text. So it's always good to think about this inductive Bible study every time we go through the Word of God just to get a better picture. So having said that, we're going to be answering some of these questions since we're preaching on the first, very first verses in order to have a better context and background behind the book of Nehemiah. So first we're going to be seeing who is the author and who is Nehemiah. And then where is Nehemiah in the biblical timeline? And we'll answer other W questions there as well. And then at the end of those, we will be examining the first four verses of the book. So we'll be done right about 3.30. We'll give a little intermission for lunch, and then you can come back. But before answering, I'm kidding. Before answering these who, where, and what questions now, let's go ahead and answer why. The why. Why is this book important? Why are we studying the book? for the next the next uh, couple months or however long it takes. Now, commentary um, points out very important key themes in the book of Nehemiah that we will be exploring. And so if you're writing things down, you can jot some of these down in here. And it says, first, God answers prayer. Secondly, the Lord works providentially. 
especially through powerful rulers, to bring about his greater purposes. Third, the Lord protects his people. Therefore, they do not need to be afraid. The Lord, fourth, the Lord is merciful and faithful to his promises, despite of his people's persistence in sin. Fifth, the worship is at the center of the life of God's people, and it includes the willing, joyful giving of their resources. Sixth, God's people need to be on their own guard against their own moral weaknesses. Seven, godly leadership involves godly administration. So these are some of the themes we're going to be exploring throughout the whole book. Um, and so that, that is very encouraging for us to be diving into. Uh, so let's go ahead and just dive into the, uh, one of those first questions that we are answering. Who is the author of the book? So the, uh, much of the book was written in the first person, right? So what is the first person? I did this. I went there. Did, you know. So this indicates that Nehemiah himself actually pinned his, his own records into the book. Other sections of the book will, uh, are thought to be written by an, an, an author that is unknown. Sometimes this author is called the Chronicler, who wrote also sections of the book of Ezra. Now, it's important now to mention that Ezra and Nehemiah are very closely related, are very close to one another. In fact, in, in ancient times, both of these books were actually counted as one. So it's not like it is today that is divided as Ezra and one book and Nehemiah as one, but actually it was the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as one book. So actually many commentaries that you read out there, many studies that you read out there, even sermons actually put both of these together and combine them. So they share a very similar timeline, a very similar storyline, a very similar structure, and actually a very similar, uh, similar outcome as well of the story. So let's have Ezra as well in your radar. So if you, if you like to read along through the book of Nehemiah, um, it, it will be good for you in, the, in personal time to actually get through the book of Ezra as well, for you to get an account of a very similar account and very related account to the book of Nehemiah. Now, as far as the written style of the book, this is interesting. It varies a lot. One commentary actually says this about the written style. It says, there's a lot, there, there's something for virtually everyone here. A general's diary, a governor's report, a civil record, a management handbook, and a memoir, all in one short book. The events covered, are covered in the span of about 13 years, and part of the liveliness of this book stems from the striking character of Nehemiah, who emerges from the pages as a godly and decisive leader. So we have all these type of genres or these type of written styles in the book, and we have to be mindful of those as far as how we analyze these and how to therefore apply them to us. And so we're going to be going through all of these. So we have a, a variety of accounts to take into account when we read throughout the book. So, so it's needless to say that, you know, it is an exciting account for us to be diving into for the next months. Now let's uh, check some of the uh, theological and historical background here. Now, throughout the history of redemption, right, God has been always in the business of saving his people. From God's promise to Eve after the fall to Abraham's call, continuing with the Exodus, and, the, and then the establishments of the nation of Israel, then to the promised Messiah and the cross and the new kingdom, and many other episodes and chapters in between. All of these events are a reflection of God's magnificent plan to bring His glory, His glorious presence to sinful men. But we know that the climax of all this 
is found in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He is the ultimate Savior, and He is the ultimate King of all kings. He was the one who delivered God's people once and for all from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. His redemptive work made possible for us to once again dwell with God in an everlasting kingdom. So having this picture in mind, but then in the middle of this long redemptive journey, the chosen people of God stumbled and and failed to obey God's commands. And God continued to show His holiness. And the people continued to realize their sinfulness and helplessness. God had promised Israel that if they would obey Him, He would bless them as a nation. And then, but if they did not, then they would be judged because and taken into captivity. That were, those were the, com- the consequences. And guess which end of the deal they were getting most often than not, right? As they tried and tried to keep God's law and commandments and covenant, nonetheless, their hearts continued to prove that they're, that they're leaning for selfish and idolatrous. So the rightful judgment of God was in place for them. So after continuing idolatries, immoralities, and breakings of God's covenants, as they moved on as a kingdom first through David, the, the kingdom of Israel divided itself into two kingdoms, and they both were judged through their enemies. The northern kingdom of the divided, uh, the, the northern kingdom uh, was fell, fall, fell, and their people were taken into captivity in, by the Assyrians in, 70, in 722 B.C. Now the Babylonians, another enemy, brought about the fall of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. And so they proceeded to destroy the walls in the, city, in the city and the temple. And so many of the inhabitants of Judah were also exiled to Babylon. So for more context, we're going to just be looking at a, at, a, at a quick timeline here to where we find ourselves. We see there the time of Abraham and Jacob and Exodus uh, and the Exodus and Moses as God leads them through. And then the judges come, and that's about 300 years. And then we see the first prophet there, Samuel and David as a king, and Solomon as a king. And then we see a divided kingdom that starts happening. And then after that, after many years of divided kingdom and their enemies pressing on them as a result of judgment, finally the northern kingdom falls in 722. Then the Babylonians take the southern kingdom in 586. Uh, And and the uh, Babylonian exile is about 70 years. And through all of this here is where we find the book of Nehemiah. During that time of the exile uh, of the Babylonians. So it's, it's about the time of 444 B.C. After, uh, long after the exile of the Babylonians. And so by now we, have, we no longer have in this time, in the time of Nehemiah, a united thriving kingdom but a divided people taken into captivity and then shamefully exiled to a pagan land. So their city and walls and temples are destroyed. The chosen people of God found themselves without leaders, without structure, and very much likely without hope. And this exile period lasted for, for more than 50 years. So continuing with the description of this account in this time, one commentary says, After the power of Babylon was broken by the Medes and the Persians in 539 B.C., many Jews returned to their homeland. One year later, the group 
the first group returned to Judah under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And we find this account in the first half of the book of Ezra. So there's one first return that is described in the book of Ezra. Over a period of years in tremendous opposition from the Samaritans, the returnees eventually succeeded in rebuilding the temple under Zerubbabel. A number of years later, a second group of Jews returned, and this, uh, this time it was led by Ezra. And this account is found in the second half of the book of Ezra. And so arriving on the scene, they found the Jews in Israel in a state of spiritual and moral degradation. So the remnants were there were not at all in line with the law of God. So they had intermarried with unbeliever peoples of the surrounding nations who were participating in their pagan practices. Through Ezra's faithful teaching and ministry, the majority of these people turned from their sins and once again followed God's will for their lives. Now, 14 years later, after Ezra's return, who's the second leader to Jerusalem to lead people back into Jerusalem, Nehemiah also returned, and God used him to guide Judah in rebuilding the city's wall. So you see what's happening here. There's a pattern, right? And it's beautiful here when we read all of these accounts, even including the one in Ezra. We see three parallel stories here. We have Persian kings granting Jews to go back to Jerusalem from their exile in three different periods of time. These exiled Jews are led by three different leaders. And these leaders were called to restore different aspects of the broken kingdom of Israel. So first, we, as we read, Zerubbabel led the building of the temple. Then later, Ezra led the restoration Torah in the community. And finally, Nehemiah led the rebuilding of the Jerusalem walls. So our focus will be on that particular Nehemiah narrative. We'll be journeying through this third guy, this restoration leader. So this is where we're going to put our focus on now in this particular book here. Now, so now that we have that context there, uh, we can take much longer doing this, all of this work here. But now that we are situated ourselves where, where, where we are, some Jews are in exile, some Jews are back in Jerusalem, everything is destroyed, no structure, they need a leader. They had one some years ago, and they did some temple rebuilding. Then they had one 14 years ago, and he tried to restore the law and the people in the community. And 14 years later, boom, here we are. Nehemiah 1, 1. And so now having that context, let's go ahead and, and read that again. So the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in, the, in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. So verse 1 introduces the memoir by including the author, who is Nehemiah. Now, as far as who Nehemiah is, we don't have much background on how he ended up in Susa, but throughout his writings, we do learn much of his leadership. The name Nehemiah means, if you want to jog that one down, the Lord has comforted. That's what its name means. Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted. We also note from verse 11 that Nehemiah was serving as a, a very influential position in Susa, which is a Persian king, kingdom to the east. We'll read about that. He was a cup bearer. Now, that doesn't seem like much uh, to us, but that's a very trusted position in the Persian court. He was in charge of choosing and tasting the wine to demonstrate that it was not poisoned. 
for possibilities of killing the high authorities or the king. So now this constant closeness to the king and to royalty could potentially make somebody as a cupbearer of much influence because he spent much time with the king. So Nehemiah was indeed portrayed as a key figure, as a key leader from the start. Now, as we continue with this memoir, we see in verses 1 and 2 that the author is telling us that he was in exile in the royal Persian city of Susa. Now, we, can, we have the map, I believe, of that as well. So let's uh, find ourselves in the map there. So if you can see uh, to the right-hand side where it says Susa right there, right on top of the Persian Gulf, uh, and then Jerusalem is to the west of that. So the book starts like that with Nehemiah exiled with probably a lot more people in Susa with a good position there of being a cupbearer. And then he's away from Jerusalem, right, which is about 1,000 miles away from that. And it's not a 1,000 straight shot, but it's 1,000 trying to get across from the crescent and, and all that in those rivers. Uh, in order to get to uh, Jerusalem, they had to go a little north and then south. And so it was a long journey for them. So here's where we find Nehemiah in that city of Susa. Now, this particular location at Susa was thought to be a kind of like a winter vacation for the Persian royalty. It sounds kind of like the Myrtle Beach for snowbirds, I guess, of that time. It, it was just a location for a lot of people to come down and spend their uh, winters there. So it was a kind of like a resort or something like that for the Persian kings. And so for context, we see that it was written in the month, in the month of Chislev, which actually that month corresponds to the months of November and December, which indeed was winter. And so he was, it was at the right time. And so most likely there was royalty there because they were spending their time um, over at that side of that, of, of, of the non-world there. So of the, uh, of the map. So the 20th year was the length that what that means when we read in verse one that the 20th year, that was actually the length of the of the king, uh, Persian king Artaxerxes reign. So that was during his 20th year of reign. So this would have been about 13 years since Ezra, or 14 or so, our previous leader had set out to Jerusalem to restore the Torah and the community. So that we found ourselves 14 years later. Now, continuing through verses 2 and 4, we, we read this, now that we have that context in mind. So Hanani, or Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. So as Nehemiah was hanging out at Susa, some of the other close related people to him came to him and asked. And Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had, sur who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, Nehemiah says, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates were destroyed, are destroyed by fire. So as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So again, this guy, Hanani, who's an apparent close friend or maybe even a relative of Nehemiah, and along with some other men from Judah, came to Nehemiah. Now, their purpose and their mission for visiting Nehemiah is unknown, but nevertheless, they're just hanging out, having fellowship. Now, Nehemiah then inquires, and some people say, in commentary, saying that probably in a semi-casual way, just kind of 
how's everyone doing back in Judah? How's everybody back then, back there in Judah? And his friends answered this question probably also in kind of like a casual way because that's just the life they knew back in Jerusalem. But then, nevertheless, the picture they painted for Nehemiah was catastrophic. And especially for somebody like Nehemiah who has a custom to luxury and winter resorts and commodities. And so they tell Nehemiah that despite previous efforts of restoration, right, by Zerubbabel and Ezra, that still the walls of the city were still down and unfortified and the people were in great shame. So the situation back in Jerusalem did not seem to progress when all, when all that was reported and indicated was going was still just an ongoing degradation and ongoing defeat and ongoing vulnerability. And so verse 4 says that as soon as Nehemiah heard all these words, that he sat down and wept for days and mourned for days. And now this is where we're going to dwell kind of for the rest of our time here today with this verse, beginning of verse 4, that he wept and mourned for days. And so we can learn a couple of things here today from Nehemiah. First, we can notice something here about Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew who he was. Now, it's clear to see that Nehemiah was someone who always had God in his God, in his mind, in his people, in his mind. Though he was a foreigner in a pagan city with other religions and many luxuries and abundance, and he had a good position where he was, still he was mindful of his primary identity. Nehemiah was devout to God despite his current lifestyle and situation. Nehemiah's heart was still in Jerusalem, not in Susa. And upon hearing the terrible news, he, it says that he sat down and probably his heart sank and mourned. That's a response for his people and his God. Perhaps Nehemiah had in his mind this psalm, Psalm 122.6, as he was mourning, maybe he was meditating on this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I seek your good. What a powerful prayer that becomes now for somebody who just heard the news that his people are in great trouble and shame and his walls are down and destroyed. That hope for shalom, for security, for peace, for getting a step closer to what God had promised, all that seemed lost. And for his people, all that was left was trouble and shame. So we see an example here in Nehemiah's primary identity that we should have as an inspiration for us this morning. I imagine again that perhaps Psalm 137.5 was in his mind as well. Maybe he was repeating what the psalmist said. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Look at the heavy emphasis here that the text is portraying for remembering who we are. 
is basically saying, if I forget who I am, who I am, and then everything I do and worship to God would be useless and worthless. Our identity in Christ shapes the true meaning of our worship and godly living. Our identity in Christ shapes the true meaning of our worship and godly living. And so this is a lesson for us here. As Nehemiah found himself away, another position with abundance, but still his heart was in Jerusalem. His identity was unshakable. So how many of us tend to be shaped by seasons of life? How many of us have seasons of ease and self-sufficiency and abundance and these comforts tend to make us forsake our first identity? Nehemiah didn't forget who he was. Being a child of the promise came first and then being a cupbearer. How many of us can confidently say that we are first and foremost children of the already promised, fulfilled promise of God in Christ? How many of us are shaped by what 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you, talking about us who are in Christ, our chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When this primary identity is saturated in our being, we naturally respond to everything, to many joys, but also, and this is the focus, to many sorrows. When Nehemiah heard of the condition of his city and his people and the danger that that presents to the fulfillment of God's promises, even though we trust in God's sovereignty for it, he mourned as a result. And now that's the second thing I want us to see about Nehemiah. First, Nehemiah knew who he was. And secondly, Nehemiah knew how to lament. Upon hearing the suffering of his people, he felt for them and cried and wept with them, even in a way, as they were also in shame and in distress and so this is a call for us again how careful are we to think about for our brothers and sisters right how empathetic we are toward those who suffer how sorrowful are we are toward those who are still lost who are toward those who are still not of the fold of god are we concerned with the condition of our church as he was concerned with the condition of the temple and the walls do we go about our days seeking to rebuild a self-made kingdom instead of desiring to participate in God's kingdom. Just as Nehemiah desired. Nehemiah is helping us here understand that there's also a healthy place for mourning and lamenting. And this language of mourning is found very frequently in Scripture. Jeremiah, for example, who actually was... A, a, a very closely contemporary of Nehemiah found himself among the remnant people who were still in Jerusalem. And he pretty much dedicated a whole book to lament his state and the state of his people. From verse 1 of the book of Lamentations, actually, we see the tone of that lament. Look what it says. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow 
has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among provinces, has become a slave. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and probably Nehemiah walking along as well in hard servitude. She dwells amongst the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuits have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. Verse 16 reveals his heart as a response of that situation. Look what he says. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me. One to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. So we see and hear the sincere heart of lament of Jeremiah. We are to remember also that pretty much one-third, one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. There's a real place of struggle and doubt and sorrow when trials come to us. And these laments, listen to this, these laments encourage us to vocalize our distress before God. Now, avoiding these places are not a healthy place for our own souls or for others. Lamentations and sorrows are the language by which, in the means by which I at the conclusion that God is good and that his steadfast love is forever. Now, this is not a pity party, right, that you throw in yourself and ends up in despair. No. Every account of lament, if you read throughout the Psalms, arrives at the end with praising God and his goodness and his sovereignty and expressing his trust, but lamenting and sorrowful. It's a means to understand our condition and our dependence upon him. Every account of lament always arrives at that. And yet... Many times we tend to portray a rather hypocritical picture of only good news, of wellness and abundance, of wisdom, of sinlessness, of security and praise. But we just know, we all know, we all struggle. So sharing our insecurities, our struggles, our uncertainties, our bad news would make us seem weak. But what happens is if we do not share our struggles before the Lord and others, how do we magnify God's power to carry us through? What testimony will there be if we do not share our laments? Where is that genuine, vulnerable heart that depends on God's strength and might for everything in life? We need to know how to share our insecurities with one another, with our brothers and sisters. Our ultimate example of that is found in Jesus. In his final hours of the cross, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus endured the most painful moment, as not because necessarily, yes, physically, because he was enduring the most horrific death, but 
most of all because he was cut off from the favor and fellowship with the Father that has been that had been his eternally because he was bearing the sins of his people and therefore he was enduring God's wrath and he models for us he models for us the example of lament as a means to communicating our dependence and need and panting for God's favor so lament indeed deeply ministers to hurting people when we start weeping with those who weep our lament is pointing to the God who deeply cares and responds to our laments we just have to admit and I'm including myself in this just do not know how to suffer hand in hand with our brothers and sisters a common example of that a classic example is to I've we fell into that is just to wait until situations are settled and are positive before sharing them with one another it seems like an internal policy of family right many of us share this philosophy of not sharing any news until they become safe to share but like this we're just not allowing for brothers and sisters to join us in prayer to for join us in our insecurities in our lamentings in our uncertainties and in calling out to God with us. I mean, each time we do that, we are saying, we're not going to let people know that we desperately need God, that we desperately depend on him. Every single time we're going to share something is going to be that we have it figured out. Let's just don't wait until the news clear up or get better so that we won't have to share them with anyone. Just... Where is God in it? Where is the love of the brethren in it? How do we glorify through it? How do we struggle together? And as you accompany someone with their openness and sorrows, when we finally do that, do precisely what God's word says. The word of God says, weep with those who weep. It does not say, Encourage with a careless advice with those who weep immediately. Or just give him a word of wisdom immediately with those who weep. Now, what does it say? Weep with those who weep. Many of us, when someone shares the sorrow, we immediately comment on a positive and optimistic answer. Oh, it'll get better. You'll be fine. You'll see. Or we turn theologians at the wrong moment and say, sister, you got to trust God's immutability of providence right now for your life. Don't be a skeptic about this. I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a time for wisdom. There is a time for encouraging. There is a time for even rebuking. But we have to know the times, right? There is a time for everything. That's a wisdom principle. But we are encouraged by God's word that we are to weep with those who weep. And so many would appreciate, would appreciate so much more instead of all these advices that when you say, this sucks, that somebody who's sitting beside you says, yeah, that, that does suck, period. It sucks indeed. So let's be vulnerable with one another. Let's be vulnerable with someone 
who already is as well. Trust a mature brother who can weep with you, who can cry with you, who can lament with you as well. And it's a difficult thing because we tend to do the opposite. We tend to switch the personal philosophy of sharing that we have it all together. But just as our example here of Nehemiah, I invite you to know who you are in Christ in such a way that you would care that much for others in such a way that you can lament with them so that you can be able to express your need for God before them and acknowledge that he is the only one who can restore your soul. So let us meditate as we read that. And just to finish up, let me read uh, the whole of Psalm 42. A A psalm of lament where there is insecurity, where there is sorrow, but there is acknowledgement of God's goodness. And I hope that this prayer would bless you if you are lamenting something right now and suffering. Psalm 42 says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throne and lead them in procession to the house of God. Glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon from the Mount of Mizar. Deep calls to deep and the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By the day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say, God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversary taunts me. My adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And look where he arrives. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Yes, hope in God. Yes, arrive at the hope in God. But do not deny the means of lament and sorrow to express your soul before God and others as Nehemiah did. And acknowledge that at the end, God gets us through and we have our hope in him. Let's pray.